Hello, Silverside friends. Spring is here. The butterflies are around, and that's our new series, Butterfly. Sit back, get something to drink, relax, enjoy the music of Melissa and friends, and also the wise words from Dr. Farmer. Thank you, Melissa. Welcome back. <clears throat> and good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So glad you're here today. Um, there will be a business meeting right after the gathering. You'll just stay put if you're a voting member or an active friend. That's right, Bill. You're going to stay in here. All right. Um, but before that, we have many other things to attend to. I'm glad you're here once again. And the uh, first reading this morning is from Jack London. Anybody a Jack London fan? Boy, uh, when I was a teenager, somebody introduced me to Call of the Wild, and I loved that book. And ever since then, I've been wanting to do a transcontinental ride across Canada in a warm train. I never did want to do the dog sled thing, but uh, a warm train sounds great. Same thing with the Orient Express. I want to do the Orient Express, but on a train with Hercule Poirot. I don't just want to get on that train uh, by myself. Anyway. This is a reading from Jack London in his book, The White Silence. Nature has many tricks wherewith she convinces people of their finity. The ceaseless flow of the tides, the fury of storms, the shock of earthquakes, the long roll of heaven's artillery. But the most tremendous, the most stupefying of all, is the passive phase of the white silence. All movement ceases. The sky clears. The heavens are as brass. The slightest whisper seems sacrilege. 
and people become timid, affrighted at the sound of their own voices, specks of life journeying across the ghostly washes of a dead world, trembling at their audacity, realize that theirs is a maggot's life, nothing more. Strange thoughts arise unsummoned, and the mystery of all things, all things, strives for utterance. And the fear of death, the fear of God, of the universe, comes over them. The hope of the resurrection and the life, this yearning for immortality, the vain striving of the imprisoned essence, it is then, if ever, people walk alone with God.
Have you ever wanted something seemingly potentially unattainable so badly you could taste it? When I was pastoring in New Orleans, the Saints were a bottom-rung professional football team. Talking bottom-rung. There was no logical reason to think that there was ever going to be any change to that. And yet plenty of diehard fans never gave up on seeing that dismal designation turn around. Being such a saintly city as New Orleans was, the citizen fans even developed a little motto or slogan, which for many of them was at least half a prayer, whether they would admit it or not. They'd say it every time they spoke the name of their beloved losing team. Bless our boys. Uh, not being an insider or a sportsman, I was one of the last in town to know what bless our boys meant or why people were saying it. I found out when I returned from vacation one year and read the prayer that my associate pastor prayed uh, in the service that he conducted in my absence. Jay, Jay Leach, wonderful preacher, wonderful person, now Unitarian pastor over in Charlotte, North Carolina, at least last I knew. Jay prayed such moving prayers that congregants asked him to write them out and uh, produce a little booklet, which he did. Um, he called the little booklet Gracious God, and I still have it on my shelf. But anyway, so the prayers were written out ahead of time, and as I was reading through what had happened in my absence, I read this prayer that Jay had written, and in the ending to the prayer, Jay prayed, Bless our boys. I didn't know what he was talking about, so I popped over to his office and said, What, what boys are you talking about? And he said, you are so out to lunch. I'm like, you've been talking to my kids again. Yes. Uh, well, I found out what it meant. A little plug for the saints. Though neither Jay uh, nor I either then or now pray for sports wins or losses. But the yearning for a brighter day was reflected in those words nonetheless. A healthy, thriving spirituality community is a yearning community. It is a yearning community for several reasons, one of which is that such a community is a living entity and must not be kept alive on life support, but must be kept alive in a healthy, dynamic, growing, exciting, moving kind of way. Otherwise, it will die. So part of our fervent yearning, why in butterfly stands for yearning, as I'm building my acrostic and finishing my acrostic today, next week we move to another series. Yearning is the continuation of real life and the avoidance of death. We have to want it so badly that we can taste it.
It cannot be casual. Next Sunday is my 21st anniversary here. So going back about 21 years and six months ago, a guy named Charlie Wiswall called me and said, I'm Charlie Wiswall. I'm chair of the pastor search committee at Second Baptist Church, Silverside Church in Wilmington, Delaware. We're looking for a pastor, and one of our recent visitors said that you might be interested in becoming our new pastor if, if we invite you. I said, who in the world would do such a thing to me? <laughs> well, his name was Mark Mooneyhan, and Mark had been a member of St. Charles Avenue Baptist Church in New Orleans. One of the banks moved him from New Orleans to Wilmington, and he was living right over here in Chalfont. And he became friends with Neil Isaac, and Neil invited him to this church, and he came one Sunday. And it wasn't his church, because Mark wanted a larger church. He was a young gay man, and he didn't think there was enough of opportunity to meet other young gay men here. So he went to, I'll tell you, I won't tell you the name of the church where he thought the most gay men were. That's a private matter. But anyway, uh, that's why he didn't come. Blaine, please cut that out of the tape. Um, <laughs> But it's the truth. Anyway, Mark called me nonetheless and said, yeah, I know Jared's about to go away to college, and I know that you said you've about had enough of the infighting over the Baptist nonsense with your current church. So there's this wonderful, beautiful, little, really eccentric and liberal church. And since you also are at least most of those things I just said, except beautiful, I think you'd fit in. I said, what are you talking about? He said, an eccentric church is looking for an eccentric pastor, and they're kind of sort of Baptist. I think, I think you'd fit in. So that's how it all got started. Charlie said, we're at, a, we're at a low point. We've had some tough times. But he said, there are 10 families, and I don't know if that was an approximation or a literal number, but he said, there are 10 families who got together and said, we will do whatever it takes to make sure this church lives and survives. So if you come here, you'll have that kind of support from at least 10 families. <laughs> and then he threw this in just in case that wasn't convincing enough. And by the way, we have enough money in the bank to pay you for 10 years, just in case things don't go as swimmingly as we hope. Twenty-one years ago when I came here, there were fewer people than this in the sanctuary. Summer. And in those years, we've tripled attendance so that many years we were in the 90 to 100 people mark in the sanctuary on a regular basis. 
sometimes with a full nursery. And then, in the last few years, we've taken some hard knocks from society and from some internal nonsense, and we're back to a point of struggle. So if we take the yearning part out of this acrostic I've built from the word butterfly, of characteristics of a thriving spirituality community, then the answer of survival is clear. There is none. Some of those 10 families that Charlie was talking about, and he never identified them to me, though I think I know who at least some of them were. Some of them have passed on into the great church community <laughs> in another realm, but some of them are still here. And some of them still love this church with the same fervor they loved it 21 years ago and 41 years ago and 60 years ago. Have you ever wanted something so badly, however seemingly unlikely it might be, that you can taste it?
Evan, it's nice to have you back with us. Thank you for being here. Our gathered reading this morning is not a responsive reading, but a unison reading. You'll find in your gathering bulletin this morning a single verse from Psalm 42. May we read this one verse together in unison. As the deer pants longingly for the water brooks, so my soul pants longingly for you, O God. And now may we sing our hymn. seated. Beautiful song, thank you. So with reference to the verse we just read in unison, the psalmist whose imagination captured this image among the several psalmists there were, it's a mistake to think that uh, one person wrote all the psalms, there's a whole bunch of psalmists, but the one who wrote this particular verse wasn't thinking about a deer out casually, gracefully, looking around for a sip of water. This deer was out of breath, panting. 
perhaps having been on the run to get away from a human hunter or a predator in the animal kingdom. Maybe she was not running to save her own life, to, but to protect her baby. Hmm? Maybe she had been unable to find water for a while in a drought situation and was panting because of the effects of severe thirst. But she was powerfully, powerfully thirsty, and her breathing was affected. British Baptist hymn writer, lyricist, Anne Steele in the mid-1700s captured this particular psalmist's message with her own poetic paraphrase of part of it. Through the sad night and mournful day, my flowing tears have been my food, while taunting foes continual say, and where is thy Savior God? Thy terrors overwhelm my soul, wave after wave with dreadful roar. So stormy seas like mountains roll and swelling billows drown the shore. Does this deer, this panting deer, desperately trying to find a drink of water, does that metaphor speak to you today? It isn't about physical thirst, of course, though if you've experienced any significant physical thirst, you'll have a deeper understanding of the true meaning of what the psalmist wrote in the song that she or he meant to be sung by the gathered community in the great temple in Jerusalem, which would have been filled by a bunch of people who knew what it was like to be spiritually and or emotionally thirsty and unable to find a way to quench one's thirst. Mm. Back to you though. Have you ever been unable to quench your significant or severe emotional and or spiritual thirst? To the point that you are panting? You long for water. You yearn to have your thirst quenched. It is for what may seem like an eternity out of reach. Maybe it seems like it will be forever. And as far as you know, at any given moment, it will be forever. What if you don't find the water? What if you don't have your thirst quenched? The deer the psalmist had in mind found water eventually, but at the moment, at the moment this imaginative snapshot was taken in the mind of and recorded on the papyrus of the psalmist, the deer was in a state of longing. She was thirsty without assurance that she would find the water. Depression is like that. Whether situational depression or clinical depression. It is a longing, a looking, a yearning for some resolution 
that often seems like it will never come. If you're going through a depression, you need support. Even a situational depression that may not require medication needs support. And if you're going through clinical depression, which could be something you struggle with for life, you need medical attention. That's the only way to find water. Have you ever been in a relationship that you treasured, you truly treasured this relationship down in your depths, but you realized with all the painful warning signs slapping you in the face every which way you turned that the relationship was crumbling and yet you yearned to have the relationship healed? Ever been there? Could be with an intimate partner, could be with a parent, could be with a child. You've done everything that you know how to do and it's crumbling. And you're panting. Anybody here yearning to have guns controlled in this country? Anybody here sick and tired of coming to the end of a week and having more innocent people dead than alive? Because idiots can get a hold of guns in just about any place they want. And the rules for gun availability is politics. Not logic. Not ethics. Not common sense. I am yearning for that. Some facts about the deer in our metaphor. She did not deny that she was thirsty. A lot of people in need, a lot of people in places of struggle a lot of people needing to make changes in their lives start out by denying it. Nope. We don't need to do anything any differently. We're just fine. <laughs> the deer knew she was thirsty and yearned for having her thirst quenched. And though fatigued, 
she didn't sit down and wait for the water to come to her. Well, I'm going to sit down here. It is kind of a drought thing, but I, it may rain any moment. I'll just wait. When old ways of finding water didn't work, she went out in search of new places. Places she had not looked before. Places she had not had to look before. And that's where she found water to quench her thirst. In the metaphor, I don't think water is God. I think it is whatever the catalyst is that gets spiritually deprived people into the presence of God so that their spiritual thirst can be quenched. Um, as we come to the time of prayer today, we naturally want to be mindful of those who sacrifice their lives for the sake of freedom. And we hope for a time when enough people realize that it shouldn't cost lives to save lives. People shouldn't have to die to protect freedom. But up to this point in time, many people have died to protect freedom and many other people have put their lives on the line to protect freedoms. Many people in this congregation through its long history have been active in military, even though they may not have supported the idea of war. I was wondering the other day at some of the previous buildings if you all ever had a wall with the names etched on it of military people like down at 9th and Franklin perhaps? Yeah? Because I would like to... You have one here? Oh, great. I've only been here 21 years. Uh, I'd like to take note of that. Well, we want to give thanks for our freedom, not, not in a way that act, not, not, not that a way that acts like God has given us freedom and withheld freedom from other people. Not, that's, not, that's not it. Mm. There are other things to be thankful for uh, in our prayer time and to celebrate. Kent, you're celebrating 28 years in your profession this week. Is that true? In that, in that, in that location. You've been doing the job longer than that. So 28 years. By the way, I have a Kent cut here, and I'm just using that as an opportunity to advertise for Kent. <laughs> Many years ago, we had a wonderful family in the church named the Shaws, Stephen Kasha, 
and they had two wonderful kids. One was a really cute little girl named Ashley. And I don't want to embarrass her, but Ashley is now a lovely young lady and a student at UD. Hey, and we are delighted that uh, she's coming back to Silverside Church. We loved your family then, we love your family now, and we're delighted that you're coming to our gatherings. Speaking of military service, twice during their tenure here, we stood with them while her dad went off for tours in Iraq. Very tense and challenging times. May we pray. Gracious God, we're still trying to figure out the true meaning of and the true value of freedom for all people. We're still trying to understand the reality that while some people are not free, none of us are truly free. We're grateful for those people who value human life, not just for themselves and their loved ones, but for all people. We're grateful for those women and men who are courageous enough to put their lives on the line for the sake of the well-being of others. We're grateful for your presence today with all who struggle, all who are anxious, all who are trying to find their way through any kind of darkness, including spiritual darkness, those who would love to find some way to you, gracious God. But who have found more barriers not because you erected them, but nonetheless have found more barriers than open pathways. We would dare to be a congregation that gets panting people to water and spiritual enrichment in all the glorious ways people find their way into your presence and therefore into your love and care. Amen. Our third reading uh, this morning comes from the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Philippi. Philippians chapter Three. Some people had accused Paul of being braggadocious, and that was a legitimate criticism. Sometimes Paul could sound extraordinarily braggadocious. I mentioned last week or the week before that Paul had this good fortune, I guess we would say, of though having been a Jew, uh, somehow having gotten Roman citizenship during a time when Rome overruled over the Jews. Uh, 
and he reminded people who were criticizing him that he was a Jew among Jews and yet a Roman citizen. And that didn't always endear him to people, uh, other Jews, who um, thought he was a sellout. How do you become a Roman citizen if you're a Jew? Well, you must be a sellout. That was not the case. So he's trying to address that in this little passage that I'm reading here. And he says to the church in Philippi, which generally loved him more than any of the other congregations to whom he wrote. Unlike Corinth, which couldn't stand him. These are the extremes. Philippians loved, the Philippians loved Paul, the Corinthians couldn't stand Paul. This is, this, is, this is a group of people that liked him. So he says, whatever gains I managed to experience in my life, I have come to regard as loss because of the anointed one. And I always change the word Christ when I'm reading a passage to the anointed one because that's what Christ means. A lot of people take the word Christ and try to divinize Jesus. If you remember Tom Ledbetter, when he used to be available to preach for us, frequently reminded us that Christ is not Jesus' last name. Yeah? So I simply do the transposing. That's what Christ means, the anointed one. And that's, that is specifically what, what, I, what it says. So... I've come to regard as lost because of the anointed one. And more than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus, the anointed one, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. He's in jail. And I regard them as scuba. It's a little kind of a off-color word. Paul cursed a little bit here and there. This word means dung. Boy, did I like finding that out when I was a college freshman. All of us Greek boys, well, there were a few ladies in the Greek classes, but most, most men. So when I stubbed my toe, I could go, scuba, you know, instead of what my mother didn't want me to say. But all, all right, I, I've come to regard things, all the things I once counted as important as scuba. I like to say it still. Uh, in order that I may gain the anointed one and be found in him, not having a righteousness on my own that comes from whatever the law says, but that comes through faith in the anointed one, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know the anointed one in the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already obtained this, or have already reached the goal, but I press on, struggle, strive, yearn, I press on to make it my own because Jesus the Anointed One has made me his own. Love that. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead.
Thank you, Evan. Thank you, Melissa. This straining forward energy image that Paul uses here is the ultimate yearning. Having been given the opportunity to achieve and receive grandly in his life, and he had been, in his soul, that is, in his spiritual center, he, the mature Paul, had come to believe that one thing matters in life more than anything else. And that one thing for Paul was knowing the anointed one. Knowing the power of Jesus' resurrection in the here and now and sharing in Jesus' sufferings in order to become like Jesus in his death. That's a lot. Paul would never have said anything simply. So this is what I think he meant. As far as knowing the anointed one, Paul was thinking he had to find some way to have an intimate connection to God as God had been identified by Jesus. We cannot commune with Jesus until we meet him in the next realm. We don't pray to Jesus, we don't worship Jesus. We pray to God, we worship God. This is one of the many reasons that so much modern evangelical theology is on the wrong track. What we can know of Jesus intimately through studying his teachings in this world though, leads us to intimacy with God. Jesus was all about leading people to God, not to himself, 100%, all right? Uh, there will come a day when as we pass from this world into the next, we will experience resurrection power in that sense. But Paul wasn't talking about waiting until that point. He longed to experience the power of the resurrection in the here and now. Before he died to this world. The power of the resurrection is God's power, letting ourselves, as my Greek professor in college used to say, free fall into God's arms. No barriers. No reservations, no hesitations. Free fall into God's arms. 
Sharing in Jesus' sufferings in order to become like Jesus in his death is absolute obedience to the law of God to serve humanity sacrificially. You can't get away from the fact that when you serve Jesus to the fullest extent, sacrifice is going to be involved. Risk, sometimes danger. It just goes with the territory. We prefer to pay missionaries to do that part. But there are plenty of people who are taking risks right under our noses here. People who go right into the most dangerous parts of Wilmington on a weekly basis to take a stand against gun violence right in the faces of the people who are carrying these guns. Being a follower of Jesus is not for the weak need or the faint of heart. Not a sweet, sweet little experience. Paul realized that he couldn't do any of the things that he hoped to do, that he wanted to do, that he felt he needed to do if he were tied to the past. However grand, however glorious it had been. You don't have to spit on your past. In fact, you shouldn't. But if your scrapbooks and your trophies are the most important things in your day, Bad news. Those are stepping stones to greater things God is luring you to do with the talents you're born with or that you have developed. I cannot hope to reach that for which I yearn Presumably with my very soul, unless I forget what lies behind. If we do not yearn for God in this world, realizing that God reveals God's self in untold numbers of ways, and thank goodness this is an incredible congregation that realizes God reveals God's self in all kinds of ways, most of these are not going to appeal to any one person, so each person finds two or three ways that God speaks to her or to him. And as a community, a diverse community, we affirm those kinds of things. It's not just one way to find God or to feel God or to honor God. So we're, we're delighted when people have different pathways to finding the water that gets them to God. And we refuse. <laughs> we refuse to bother with the skibola. Amen.
benediction and blessing. And let us go forth in this place today panting on our journeys to find deeper communion with God. Amen.